In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about those things which have terrible control over you. How's everyone doing? Are you okay? We try to keep these shows somewhat evergreen and not tie them to a particular date and time, but I feel like we all need to look after ourselves and each other during this unsettling period in our life. If you're looking for some distractions, I'll remind you about our YouTube channel. We'll have 10 No Sleep live streaming performances on there by the time you hear this. And we recently did our first episode of Inside the No Sleep Studio, where we discussed the story Whitefall. Check out all that at youtube.com slash the No Sleep Podcast Official. And don't forget the 10 hours of stories we have on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the no sleep podcast. We hope you and yours are staying safe and somewhat sane. So let's delve into some creepy tales. What do you say? Well, I say now close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we've secured an exclusive invitation to one of the hottest parties in town. No, no, it's not the final party. It's a function at Imperial Tower. Everyone wants to attend. And in this tale, shared with us by author Josh Gothier, we meet a man who's even more desperate to attend than everyone else. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Dan Zapula, Mick Wingert, Jessica McAvoy, Graham Rowett, and Sarah Thomas. So put on your best frocks or coattails and get ready for the soiree of the century. Get ready for the night of darkness, flames of blood. After all I have seen, it remains strange that the sole difference between an eccentric and a lunatic is the amount of money possessed by each. Having made his fortune in banking before making another fortune in chemical waste disposal, Prospero Quast is of the first category. 
Five months ago, after noting what he called the unrest growing in our city, Quast secluded himself in his 90-story monstrosity named the Imperial Tower. Among the upper class, Quast is known to offer an open hand to anyone he considers a friend. As such, Imperial Tower has become something of a refuge for the rich and famous. A place for them to revel in their status and escape the concerns of the world outside. But admittance to the Imperial does not come easily, and it does not come cheap. With time, Quast's parties have grown longer. They began as a way to pass an evening, then a day, then a week. It is expected that the next will last ten days, and this time... I secured my invitation. Even with what I have heard, the sight of Quast's revelry suite surprises me. It ranges over seven levels of the Imperial. Each floor offers its own decorative theme, its own amusements. They are connected in a way that threatens to turn the mind in circles. Staircases run from the fourth level of the suite to the second, from the second to the fifth. One elevator does not stop on the sixth level, another elevator only reaches the first and the fifth. It is a maze of diversions, and Quast's friends throw themselves into it with glee. No one asks my name as I linger at the edge of the first level. Quast has declared this party a masquerade. It is a game these luminaries enjoy playing. I smooth the creases of the white suit I had tailored specially for this event. My mask as well is white, simple. The perception of anonymity has strange effects on people. It is a fact I see playing out around me. An aging actress straddles a state senator on a couch in the corner. She is married, he is separated. No one looks their way. At the bar, the district attorney swallows a handful of pills. No one acknowledges who he is. They play the game, as do I. The district attorney shuffles away as I sit on one of the bar stools. The bartender has black hair gathered in a ponytail that hangs halfway down his back. The tattoo of Imperial Incorporated on his forehead marks him as an employee with a lifetime contract. What'll you have? Do you know how to make a bloody vengeance? A frown flickers at the corners of his mouth. His eyes meet mine. He hesitates. I do? Then I will have one. He turns around to mix tomato juice and five types of liquor in a glass. When it is ready, he slides the drink toward me with a napkin beside it. He leaves immediately to talk with the patrons at the far end of the bar. I lift the napkin to find a memory stick beneath. I slip the stick into my pocket and taste the drink. It is vile. I leave it on the bar. The nearest staircase leads from the electric blue glare of the first level into the dim purple glow of the second. Purple lasers slash designs through the gloom. 
black lights illuminate everything, casting the scene into obscure silhouettes and lurid phantasms. Black pits stare from shimmering masks. Grotesque performers writhe on elevated platforms. Two conjoined, mostly human forms dance beside the bar, their internal wiring exposed in clumps. Near them, an animatronic half-goat, half-woman offers assorted drugs to guests. It is not always clear which performers are human, which are machine, which are both. Near me, a young woman with a deformed face and no arms hangs from a loop of broad ribbon attached to the ceiling. Her eyes are closed. People throw money that she cannot catch, and they leave the money on the floor where it falls. I recognize the type of burns that have deformed her. Doesn't she look hideous? I turn to the speaker. The man is thin, skeletal, with sunken cheeks and hair so thick it could only be artificial. His suit is an orange color that glows far too brightly under these lights. His half-mask is that of a young girl, exaggerated with large eyes and full cheeks. There are many terrible things in this world. Only some of them are on display here tonight. He has been watching the woman. Sorry, what was that? Nothing of consequence. Here, let me get you a drink. He waves at a mechanical waitress who glides across the carpet. What do you have? Tequila? Whiskey? Nothing. From within her chest, the waitress produces a glass. She opens the tip of her left index finger and from it fills the glass with scotch. The man begins to drain his glass. You know, I, I looked out the window earlier. He chokes a little on the drink. How's that? The window. I, I peeled back the covering to look outside. Why would you go and do something like that? To see what is happening. Would you like to know what I saw? That sounds lovely, but uh, I need another drink. He walks away. I turn back to the girl on the ribbon. Her eyes are open now. They are milky white. She cannot see me. But she can sense when I stand beside her. The hour is nearly struck. May it strike true. Her voice is a rasp, as damaged as her face, as her dancer's body. She twists in the ribbons, twirls, elicits a few cheers from the crowd. Her bare foot brushes down my arm. I turn my hand, open it, and receive a computer chip between my fingers. No one recognizes the exchange. Make them pay. For all their sins. She wraps herself in the ribbon, rising up, away from the crowd. The next staircase takes me to the fifth level, which is decorated all in white and illuminated with such violence that the people within wear mirrored shades over their eyes. I do not linger, but take the next staircase. This goes only to the third level, which is dimly lit and decorated entirely in shades of green. This is wrong. 
the blueprints provided to me were inaccurate. The mistake is an inconvenience. The servers on this level are human. They are clothed only in scraps of leather. The leather appears real, but the illegality of this fact goes unacknowledged by the present company. The electric tattoos of the servers illuminate patterns of vines across their arms, their stomachs, their legs. Lights ripple along the designs, ripple a shimmer, fade. A cheer for our host! That is when I see Quast on the far side of the room. He gives a wave. His thin voice barely carries over the chanting coming from the speakers. Good people, eat and drink your fill. Embrace your fantasies, for today is all we have. Make the most of it. The crowd obeys with gusto as Quast disappears into an elevator. I brush a hand against the arm of a passing girl. When she turns to me, I see she is young, maybe 18, and the birthmark on her forehead. She is the pop star, the newest one-hit wonder. What do you want? Your name is Cirilla, correct? She frowns at my breach of decorum. I don't know who that is. Do you know the quickest way to the seventh level? Why do you want to go there? Do you know or not? She sways a little. She tries to focus her eyes on my face. That elevator. She points. I don't like it up there. I am not going for my amusement. Then why go? I leave her behind. I do not like elevators. They are too contained, too restrictive. But this one opens at the press of a button, and it does connect to the seventh level. I step inside, roll back my sleeve. The display in my arm tells me it is five minutes to midnight. The door opens on the seventh level. The room is deserted, and it's not hard to see why. The ceiling is painted black. The floor is black tile. Black curtains cover every section of the wall. There are no lights, no lasers. Instead, iron sculptures hold bowls of projected fire. These bowls shine red, red as blood, red as death. As the light flickers across the walls, it casts everything in shades of violence. At the far side of the room, I see my prize. The great-grandfather clock, black as its surroundings, towers from floor to ceiling. I cross the empty floor to reach it. There is no music here, and every footstep is like a cry of pain. The front panel of the clock is sealed but slides open when I insert the memory stick, specially programmed with overrides for every lock in the building. Behind the panel is a computer console. The console connects to the clock, the clock to the building. It is my first goal. Password, it prompts. I slide the computer chip into the console. Accepted, says the screen. Override enabled. 
The program on the chip runs automatically. As the clock hands swing to midnight, the chip does the work it was programmed to do. And below me, I know the music has fallen silent. The lights of the party have been replaced with the red glare of emergency lighting. The security doors at every exit from the revelry suite have locked. Providing the seclusion the rich and famous played at possessing, I am halfway back across the room when the elevator door slides open. It is Quast, with four members of his security team. They hold stun batons as they rush me. I slip the bone knife from my sleeve. The security forces and I dance together. They are poorly trained, clumsy. I am not. I twirl and lunge and glide and four men fall to the tile. The elevator door has closed. Frantic, Quast enters his override code into the panel. He is not fast enough, no. I seize his shoulder and pin him to the wall. What do you want? Justice. He does not understand. I have inserted an override that will open your system to the outside world. Your jury has been provided evidence of your crimes. What jury? With my free hand, I pull the mask from my face. In the light of the fires, it is scarlet. It is the color of blood. Quast's eyes widen and I smile. I know what he sees. The scars, the chemical burns that twist my face into a nightmare visage. You see now. The chemicals you mishandled have become our burden to bear. But you cannot outrun your sins. I fling him to the floor. As he lands, I grip the nearest curtain and tear it from the ceiling. Behind the curtain is a window. The window looks out on our city. Maybe half the buildings have power. Fires burn unchecked. Crowds flood the streets carrying torches, carrying weapons. The scarred, the dispossessed, the mighty. Look on your work, Prospero. Quast rises to his knees and looks out on the scene before him. I want him to weep. I want him to feel our pain. His face is pale, washed red in the glow of the fire. He turns wide eyes to me, eyes that hold anger, hold terror. I look outside. I advance as he turns back to the window, to the fires and the mob. Watching, he tries to speak. I didn't! I bury my knife in his spinal column. And he is dead as he falls. I insert the memory stick into the console beside the elevator. The door opens and I descend to the next level. The elevator is mirrored inside. In the emergency lights, my suit is red. It is spattered with blood. 
the spots nearly black against the scarlet hue. My face, scarred, wild, might scare even me, if I was still capable of fear. I draw another bone knife as the door opens on the sixth level. The violet furnishings are dull under the red lights that now illuminate all seven levels of the suite. People stand, unmoving, afraid, and perhaps confused. They draw back from me, but do not flee. Like animals, they are unsure how to respond to an unknown threat. I look on my prey and smile. Here in the red darkness, I am death, and I hold a dominion over all. Moving back into your childhood home after the death of a parent can be difficult. There are all sorts of memories and things that trigger nostalgia. The ghost of your loved one seems to wait around every corner. But in this tale, shared with us by author Austin Gregg, Lily is plagued by especially bad memories and nightmares. Performing this tale is Addison Peacock. So explore the old family homestead, but keep an ear out. What's that sound? What's it leading you to remember? Do you really want to find the truth of what you're being led to discover by the rustling of plastic? At 3 a.m., Lily shook in a cold sweat, leaning against the kitchen counter she used to sit on as a kid. The same dream put her here at about the same time every night since she had returned home. Each night, she'd snap awake, as instant as the drink she was struggling to make now. It took two hands to keep the kettle steady and pour into the ceramic mug. The water didn't taste as good here as it had at home in the city. She wanted to laugh at that word. Home. This was home now, once again. The last time she remembered leaning over and shaking against this ugly green countertop was decades ago. Her pants had been yanked down around her ankles as her father brandished a wooden paddle behind her. The paddle had holes in it, so it would leave welts. It was an artifact left over from his days as a school administrator. But her daddy never hit her. Instead, he screamed for her mother to get her ass in the kitchen or so help him God he'd use more than the paddle on both of them. He'd give her mother the paddle and tell her to swing it. He was never satisfied until Lily's skin broke. 
Lily poured her instant coffee and prayed it would cover up the coppery taste of the water. She looked out the kitchen window, stirring her drink with a thrift store spoon. She didn't own good silverware anymore. The backyard glowed yellow under the dim, pole-mounted floodlight at the far end of the yard. The property line was sharp, where the dead grass ended and the thick Ozark forest began. The yard itself was a dull open space with a single tiny shed for tools. Tools her father refused to let her touch because hammers are for boys, Lil. You're no good for these things. Well, they were her tools now. It felt wrong to complain about her inheritance, but it had come with too much land. What would she do with all of it? Her parents should have sold some of it a long time ago. Maybe the last few years would have been less costly if they had. In-home care had been expensive, but her father wanted more than anything to die in his own home. Now that he'd passed, Lily could finally look at moving mom into a rest home. Somewhere she could make a few friends and exercise what was left of her mind. Marcus, Lily's soon-to-be ex-husband, would have loved the old family house. Quaint, he would have called it. Just like he called everything, their old silverware set included. He threw the word quaint around like he threw his fists at her. Like he threw around the word divorce over the last year as if the whole thing was somehow her fault. Marcus would have loved all the yard space, though. He'd talk and talk about planting a garden come spring, but he'd be too busy fucking his tutor students to ever get around to it. In truth, it was probably only the one girl, but he fucked her good enough because she sounded like a squeaky toy when Lily walked in on them, screwing in the living room. The dumb girl's textbooks spread around them as he gripped her from behind, the TI-84 calculator ten feet away with its batteries scattered across the hardwood floor. Lily's hardwood floor. The one she'd picked out with Marcus four years ago. Yeah, Marcus would have loved the house, just like her father had. The sudden sound pulled Lily from her thoughts. The shutters on the house needed to be nailed down or ripped off. Something her father never lived long enough to do and her mother never seemed to mind in the first place. Not that her mother minded anything anymore. She spent most days either in her room or staring out the front window from the deacon's bench. It was storm season in Tornado Alley, which meant even when Lily could manage to fall asleep in her childhood bed, skull crammed against the bright red headboard and feet hanging off the edge, she never slept well. Gales of wind brought the house to life. In whispers, whistles, and the clatter of shutters, smashing themselves against the walls of the house like foul toddlers throwing fits. But tonight... Her dreams were louder than the screaming wooden children. In Lily's dream, a dead man laid on a bed. His throat was bruised black and stained red. It was her parents' bedroom, and the dream filled her gut with anxious guilt because she was never, ever supposed to go in there. The childhood rule had become a permanent part of her, like the scars on her backside. She watched the dead man rot away as time hazily flew by in the dreamscape as if someone had punched fast forward on a VHS tape. 
someone joined her in the dream, appearing in the doorway. She knew the man standing there, but couldn't place his face. No, couldn't remember his face. Did the man have a face? She could feel his anger, a sticky static in the air. It seemed no matter how many times Lily sipped her coffee, she couldn't coax her mind to remember what had led her dream self to the only forbidden room in the house. And even halfway through her coffee, the man's face remained shadowed in memory. She may have been forbidden to enter her parents' bedroom growing up, but she knew what happened in there. Mother and father would go in, and only father would come out. Mother would be gone for hours, sometimes days. And when she fully emerged from the dark bedroom, her wounds had only begun to heal. Something moved outside the kitchen window. A shape raced out of the woods at the edge of the property and was headed towards the house. Lily's heart pounded as she set the mug in the sink, burning her hand as she did. She was more than 30 miles away from the next house. A dog, maybe? She leaned closer to the glass and squinted. Wind sent the shutters roaring again. The shape's movements were both smooth and jarring. Was it running or flying? The floodlight on the other side of the property shed just enough light to show how fast it was coming out of the woods and straight for her back door. As fast as someone running full sprint. It was unshapely. It was flying. It was... It was a plastic bag. Just more trash blowing around in the heavy June air. She poured out the rest of her coffee. If she was going to have more nightmares, she didn't need caffeine fueling them. She smelled the salt of her own sweat as she wiped a wet brow. The house didn't have central AC, just a few window units, despite years of her offering to help pay for central air. Now, being a single income, that wouldn't happen. But her mother stayed nice and cool with the window unit in her room, quietly reading or watching Gilligan's Island with the volume maxed for her failing ears. In the hallway, Lily turned the yellowed plastic dial on the wall and the attic fan rumbled to life. The shutters continued their tantrum outside as she made her way back to her bedroom. But halfway down the hall, she stopped. Something whispered behind her. The sound came from the stairs leading to the second floor, empty ever since Mom couldn't do stairs. Lily followed the sound and strained her eyes to see up through the shadows. A plastic bag was caught on the hand railing at the top of the stairs. The current from the attic fan caused it to flutter and flap. She considered it for a moment, then sighed and trudged upstairs. As she approached the plastic bag, she realized she didn't recognize it. Not from the farmer's market, the gas station, or even the Walmart. It was a deep blue, like a Royals baseball cap. There were clumps of something black inside, like coffee grounds or topsoil, partially weighing it down. Like a lot of the trash blowing around outside, it must have been left over from the estate sale. But before she could grab it, the air current took it off the railing and carried it across the hall, trailing bits of black dirt behind it 
before it stopped on the floor against her parents' old bedroom door. Lily stared at the door while she scratched her nails against the wood of the hand railing. She stopped when she felt something gathering under her nails and prayed it was just the varnish. A similar sound joined the rustling of the plastic bag. It was a similar but thicker, more forceful flapping behind the door to her parents' bedroom. Lily went to the door and reached for the handle. It felt wrong. She had to remind herself this was her house now. She was taking care of mom. Despite not wanting to turn the handle, she must have, because the door clicked and swung open. Inside the room, a large blue tarp flapped and fluttered, covering the queen-sized bed. Like the small plastic bag, it too was brought to life by the attic span current. Was the tarp left over from the sale too? There was no way she'd forget seeing a tarp like this one. Not in here. Lily's stomach felt like a dish rag doused in kerosene, wrung tight and set aflame. The longer she looked at the tarp, the harder her guts twisted and burned. It wasn't left over from the estate sale. She was sure of it. Her face flashed hot. She'd throw the damn thing in the closet tonight, then in the fucking garbage tomorrow. No, she'd burn it. She'd burn the room down now if she could. She might, after mom was out of the house. Her heart stopped as she saw the mud on the tarp. And underneath, a blood stain on the bed. There wasn't much, but there wasn't supposed to be any. She'd been so, so careful. There was no way it could be here. Had anyone seen it? How many people had come up during the sale? Had one of the auctioneers seen the stain, found the hidden tarp, and used it to cover the bed? She'd swear on her father's grave the tarp was buried. Bleach. She needed bleach. It was still downstairs in the closet. She looked out the bedroom's only window, careful not to touch the steel loops her father had installed above the bed years ago. There were no red and blue lights flashing outside. She was fine. Of course she was fine. For now. She would take care of this one last thing, then be done with it. Done forever. She would be safe. Her mother would be safe. Lily turned back to the door and froze. The small plastic bag floated at eye level in the doorway. And the longer Lily looked, the clearer the shape became through the darkness. There was a body suspended under the plastic bag, its pale toes gliding inches above the dark birch floor. Its face wore the bag like a mask. Its neck was blackened and glistening. The plastic drew a sharp whisper as the bag sucked itself tight around the wide, screaming mouth of her father. His face caved inwards. Blood encircled his eyes and spread through the tight plastic like roots, racing through soil. He held the hammer she'd used, now caked with mud in his right hand. His face caved deeper, an eye socket vanishing. 
The head took on a new shape, as it had when she'd held him at the top of the stairs and pressed his twice-struck head into the railing with what she hoped was the same force as an old man falling down. Her father's feet lowered to the floor, and he stepped forward. His ankles ground and his knees popped. They were the same sounds his bones had made as he tumbled down the stairs months ago when the accident happened. He came for her, spilling blood and dirt across the floor she had tried so hard to scrub clean. He raised the hammer, just like he had made her mother raise the old wooden paddle so many times. Just like he raised his hand to her mother. Just like Marcus had raised his hand to her. Lily smiled, and because she knew the hammer would not fall, she wiped a tear, gathered the tarp from the bed, and stepped through her dead father on her way to find the bleach. When you're an authority figure to a younger colleague, it's natural to often feel like a parental figure to them. You can be their boss, their mentor, and their friend. The person they come to when they need help on the job or off it. But in this tale, shared with us by author Dustin Walker, we meet a conservation officer whose young co-worker needs some rather unusual help. Joining me in performing this tale is Matthew Bradford. So let's join Don as he heads over to help his young colleague, Jason. What he's claiming can't be true, can it? He can't really have a wolf in chains. I knew something was wrong the moment I got a good look at Jason. He stared at the living room floor, one meaty hand wrapped around an empty highball glass. Hunting gear lay piled at his feet, boots, backpack, camouflage pants, and jacket. Jason looked up at me with vacant eyes. Something in his gaze wasn't quite right. Sorry it's so late, but I'm glad you came. Yeah, no problem. So, did you call me over just to watch you get hammered? I smiled before easing myself into one of the duct-taped recliners. I considered the half-empty bottle of scotch waiting on the coffee table. Uh, Maybe later. He had called me at about midnight. Just a short, simple request to come over. So I did. What else does a middle-aged bachelor like me have to do? Plus, Jason was a good kid. A tad weird at times, maybe. But he had a good heart, and after a few more years, I'd make him into a damn fine conservation officer. Everything all right? I could tell things weren't. Stress lines creased his chubby face. He rocked back and forth slowly, just watching the floor. I don't know, Don. It's Chris. Yeah, where is he? 
I thought you booked off today so you guys could bag a deer or two. The sound came from the basement. What was that? Jason looked right through me. I'll show you, but you have to keep an open mind, alright? I thought that was an odd thing to say, but I nodded. Sure, pal, no problem. He heaved his bulky frame off the couch and lumbered towards the basement door. Forgetting something? I held out Jason's glasses. I knew he hated them. Might want to put them on if you're heading down a dark staircase after hitting the booze. Oh, yeah. Uh, Still getting used to wearing the damn things. He offered a thin smile and slid them on. Not a good look. They made Jason appear more like a computer geek than an outdoorsman. But hey, better than the kid breaking his neck. Should I get my gun? No, it's fine. He's chained up. He's chained up? Ah, shit. I wondered what kind of strange pet Jason might have tied up down there. The kid opened the basement door and hit the light switch. A single flickering bulb bathed the wooden stairs in dull tungsten. Each step groaned under our feet as we descended. The acrid stench of piss filled the air. Jason nodded toward the cold room door. Okay, here we are. So, what's in there? I could feel my face turning flush. Jason could be a real pain in the ass sometimes. He walked over and wrapped his hand around the knob. Remember, just try to keep an open mind, okay? The kid yanked it open. I jumped back as a snarling face lunged toward me. I threw up my hands and stumbled just as the wolf snapped back against the force of a thick chain connected to an even thicker leather collar. It's Chris. I heard what Jason had said, but it didn't really sink in. I was too absorbed by the snarling animal that leapt in the air and thrashed around. Drops of quivering saliva clung to its jaw. How the fuck did that get here? Can't you tell who this is? Look at his eyes. They just looked like regular wolf eyes to me. It's my brother. Can't you tell it's Chris? Jason gestured toward the snarling animal. I paused, trying to take it all in. Jason had a weird look about him. Glassy, sort of disconnected. I had seen that look before. My uncle Jake had it after he came back from a tour of Vietnam. It was a look people get when they see something no one should ever have to see. Have you gone nuts? It's a wolf, for Christ's sake! It is a wolf, but it's also Chris. Remember when that film crew came here a few years ago? I shook my head and sighed. Not this again. Those guys were researchers. They were convinced Yellowpoint had a werewolf roaming around. And I believe them. That fucking beast got Chris. I know it did. Jesus, Jason. I rubbed my temples as a headache crept in. Come on, man. We've been through this werewolf shit before. There's no such thing. He ignored me. 
the, uh, the United Paranormal Research Society. They said it was only a matter of time before more people in Yellow Point were infected. That's what Dr. McLean told the filmmakers. And Jason, I... those filmmakers were just some college punks working on a school assignment. This is ridiculous. Too ridiculous, in fact. I started to wonder if the boys were playing a prank on me. Maybe Chris would hop out from behind the water heater the moment they thought I was buying into this nonsense. Jason was more likely to fall for such gags than plan them, but Chris had a bit of a mischievous streak. Dawn, it's him. Jason pointed at the growling wolf. It backed further into the tiny room, dragging the thick chain in with him. I know it's Chris. Just hear me out, that's all I ask. I figured I'd let myself get sucked in. Like I said, an aging bachelor doesn't have a whole lot of ways to spend his time. And to be honest, being part of a prank was better than being alone. And I liked Jason's company, even when he was acting a bit nutty. All right, I'll listen. But you better grab that bottle of scotch. We went back upstairs and collapsed into separate chairs. Jason's hand trembled as he poured us each a drink. I knew that Chris had never acquired the hardiness most people in this town grew into. You could tell the kid was frail just by looking at him. Made him an easy target, I suppose. Their drunk-ass dad would often wallop on Chris after their mom left a few years back. After a while, Jason wouldn't stand for that, so he busted his hand on the guy's face. I think that was the last time the boys saw their old man. <laughs> Good riddance. So, I guess you have a story to tell. I tipped back the shot. The cheap scotch sent a comforting warmth to my gut. Jason nodded. His gaze returned to the floor. We went hunting like we'd planned, just the two of us down by Silver Creek. The snow was thicker around there and it really held us up. We didn't see a deer all day and it was already starting to get dark. So Chris had to take a leak. You boys boozing it up out there? Yeah, not a drop. We were gonna head to Beaver's afterwards for a few. Anyway, you know Chris. He won't piss with anyone else around, so he stumps off into the bush somewhere. I keep quiet, thinking I might spy a buck just outside the tree line. Jason downed his scotch. The kid's voice had a slight slur to it as he continued. So I'm standing there, waiting, when I see a big-ass five-pointer wander into the clearing out of nowhere. I'm thinking that I hit the freaking jackpot. I get him in my sights and pull the trigger, just as it suddenly bolts into the bushes. I stand there wondering what spooked the buck off, and then I hear Chris screaming. I, I run into the woods looking for him. Suddenly I, I hear a wolf howling from somewhere in the trees. It scares the shit out of me. And then I see Chris laying there, groaning and holding his chest. Jason's bottom lip quivered. Things got kind of fuzzy after that. The next thing I remember is looking up at the full moon and, and then down at Chris. Only he wasn't Chris anymore. He had changed, Dawn. I don't remember it happening. I must have blacked out or something. But his human body was gone, and instead there was a fucking wolf just sitting there, staring at me. I could tell by his eyes that it was Chris. Tears slid down his face. I couldn't just leave him out there like that, 
so I, I remembered the tranquilizer gun still strapped to the snowmobile from when we dealt with that raccoon in town. I ran back and grabbed it. There was just enough light out that I was able to hit him with a dart before he took off. Then I carried him back here and put him in chains. Like I, I didn't know what the hell else to do, so after a couple hours thinking on it, I decided to call you. I didn't know what to say. How should I react to a crazy story like that? Under any circumstance, I would have sworn he made it up. But the conviction in his eyes convinced me he had actually believed that was what had happened. Once the sun comes up, you'll see. Then we can take Chris to Dr. McLean. He's a paranormal researcher. Maybe he'll know what to do. Just wait until tomorrow, Don, when the full moon's gone. I got up and pulled open the blinds covering the big bay window. The round yellow moon hovered above the trees. Pale light soaked the snow-covered bushes, giving the yard an eerie glow. Jason, come on now. If your brother is lost somewhere or hurt, we need to organize a search party right away. Damn it, he's chained in the fucking basement. Just for once, quit thinking I'm just a fat buffoon and realize that I'm telling you the truth. That hurt. I never thought of Jason as a buffoon. Oh, shit. Did he think I treated him like one? Please, Don, try to realize there are things we can't always explain right away. Just this once. I stared at the empty glass in my hand, too ashamed to make eye contact with the kid. I was tough on him sometimes, often razzing him for his interest in all that monster crap, but I never wanted to make him feel like an idiot. <sighs> You're not a buffoon, Jason. I put the glass on the table. And I never thought you were one, not for a second. You're a good kid, a good conservation officer. His anguished face softened a little. Then believe me, Dawn, just for tonight. The sun would be up in a few hours. If this all really was some strange prank, then I guess I'd play for the fool for a little while longer. At the very least, it would show the kid that I trusted him and that he could trust me too. I like being the guy he called on when shit hit the fan. Okay, pal. I believe you. But just for tonight. Wolf attacks are pretty rare, but Yellow Point is smack in the middle of some of the best wolf habitat in North America. It's terrible, but wild animals do attack sometimes. Nothing supernatural about it. Both Jason and Chris were fascinated by werewolves. Not surprising, I guess, considering all the bullshit stories that had spread around town over the past decade. Those two boys talked about wolfmen all the time, went on and on about the old movies and stuff. And damn, did Jason know a lot about them. He was midway through explaining the finer points of why silver bullets hurt werewolves when he looked up at the ceiling. A big smile crossed his face. When we were kids, me and Chris would tromp through the woods trying to find us a werewolf. That empty look in the kid's eyes disturbed me. I'd have my cap gun, but he always carried a stupid broom handle with him. I asked him once what that was supposed to be, and he said it was a silver sword. A guy can run out of silver bullets or miss his target, he said. And if that happened, I'd need someone I could trust to watch my back while I reloaded. His eyes welled up again. I mean, people say I always looked out for him, but they don't realize he was always looking out for me, too. Jason wiped away tears. I fucking hope he'll be okay, Don. 
I need him to be okay. He will be, pal. He'll be fine. I tried to smile and look confident in what I was saying. Deep down, I had a sick feeling that Chris wouldn't be fine at all. But God, I hope my instincts were wrong. We were quiet for a while after that. At some point, I fell asleep, sprawled out on his couch. Now, I'm not much of a dreamer, but that night my mind was filled with flashes of razor teeth and blood-caked claws. I remember only bits and pieces of the nightmare, but I do recall looking into the kid's bathroom mirror, horrified as coarse gray fur sprouted from every pore in my face. Don't Hey, Dawn. The kid's voice woke me up. Sunlight streamed in from between the dirty white curtains. My ears strained, trying to pick up any noise from downstairs. None. Let's go. We both went into the basement. My heart hammered louder with each step down those creaking stairs. This was it. Jason would see that snarling beast, still chained to the wall and realize he was either the target of a major prank or he needed his head examined. But a small part of me expected Chris to be there, curled up on the cement floor, naked and shivering. I tried to push that thought aside, but it lingered in my head like a sour aftertaste. Maybe the kid had worn me down a little. We still hadn't heard any scratching or growling coming from inside the cold room. I held my breath as Jason went to the door and put his hand on the knob. He looked back at me with saucer eyes. I nodded. He pulled the door open. A heap of grey fur lay motionless in the corner of the room. The chain was wrapped tight around the wolf's neck. Blood stained its fur. The kid stared at the dead animal for a few seconds. That's not him. It's not Chris. Relief rushed over me. Okay, I thought. Now we can figure out what's really going on. Okay, pal. So where is he? Where's your brother? The kid looked right past me, as if staring out at some strange landscape only he could see. Lost, empty eyes. A shiver raced down my spine as memories of Uncle Jake came rushing back. Vietnam had left him with a sick mind, always babbling about visiting his buddies as if they had survived the war. And he always had that same blank expression, the same look Jason had now. The kid started nervously pulling on the bottom of his shirt. Okay, I know what happened. Werewolves always attract real wolves, so sort of like their minions. Jesus Christ, he really had lost it. When I fired toward Chris with a tranquilizer, I must have hit one of the real wolves that had followed the head werewolf before it bit Chris. My blood boiled. I tried to stay calm, told myself the kid was not well, but all that werewolf crap got to me. I grabbed him by the shoulder, hard. Just stop it. Stop it now. There are no such things as werewolves. He shoved me away and ran upstairs. I kept on his heels. Where are you going? Jason pulled on his boots and his bright orange jacket. Back to Silver Creek. He's out there somewhere, and has probably changed back into his human form just a little while ago. I don't care if you come or not. 
Before I could get another word in, he stormed out of the house and hopped on his snowmobile. I managed to slide in behind him just before he gunned the sled. Its mechanical scream busted the morning silence. We powered through snowbanks and up a couple of steep hills. It didn't take us long to get to Silver Creek. He started calling out for his brother as soon as he killed the engine. Chris? His voice wavered a little, almost as if he didn't want to hear a reply. Where are you, bro? Jason charged into the woods, fast for a big guy. I couldn't keep up with him, but I could still hear him yelling in the distance. Chris, where are you, man? My lungs burned as I trudged through knee-deep snow and thrashed against the brush. After about ten minutes, I couldn't hear the kid calling for his brother anymore. Jason's orange hunting jacket peeked through the trees. He was staring at the ground. A nervous fluttering hit my gut. He was just standing there, frozen. Snot and tears oozed down his red face, eyes wide like a wounded deer. I took a few more steps and then stopped. I spotted what the kid was looking at. A bright orange jacket, just like his, stood out against the bone-white snow. I lunged through the thick bramble, not noticing the thorns that nicked my face. Then I almost puked. The image came hard and fast. I should have been ready for it, but I wasn't. Frozen blood coated Chris's chest and saturated the snow around him. His jacket was open a little. The bullet had entered just below his neck. I did that, didn't I? The kid was trembling. <sighs> I forgot my glasses again. I didn't know where he was. I couldn't see him and... Oh, Christ. His grief-stricken mind just hadn't been able to cope with a shock like that. What better place to hide from all that pain than in his beloved werewolf fantasies? But reality was rushing back to him now, blindsiding the poor guy like a midnight tsunami. I threw my arms around him and pressed his head against my chest. He fell to his knees in a sobbing heap. I killed my baby brother. The kid looked up at me with wet, shimmering eyes. I did that to him, didn't I? My heart shattered. I loved Jason, loved the kid like a son. Looking back, I know I didn't do the right thing. But at that moment, all I wanted was to ease Jason's pain. The pain made so much worse by him knowing he had killed his own brother. No, pal. Of course you didn't do that. Sometimes, delusions can be kind. It was the werewolf. Mars, 
a world filled with such promise and bounty. For years, mankind has longed to conquer Mars and make it our own, to surf those sands, to farm that cracked and dusty soil. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jesse Rose, we take a jump into a future where humankind has colonized the red planet. And for some, that's a point of pride, but others still miss Earth with a feverish desperation. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Andy Cresswell, Aaron Lillis, Atticus Jackson, Sarah Thomas, Kyle Akers, David Alt, and Nicole Doolin. So let's enjoy our new home while we can, because someone is causing trouble again. And this time it might go too far. It might lead to the first murder on Mars. Nigel stood ten feet away, his back turned to me. His suit obscured the direction his eyes were gazing towards, but I knew. He was looking up at the sky. This is our home. We live here. His voice crackled through my earpiece. You know what I mean, Al. He raised his arm and extended his palm towards the stars above. Earth. We're never going back. It's been twenty years. I don't really think about it anymore. I turned away and overlooked the thriving community we had built together, with pride in my chest. Nigel had named our community Cronus, after the Greek god of agriculture when we first landed, and the name stuck, despite headquarters preemptively naming it Spirit after the rover that landed here in 2004. Cronus was now a series of living units spanning across 36 different pods. There were only two when we first arrived. In 20 years, we'd gone from four people to 72. Remarkable, if I do say so myself. My focus is occupied with the settlement, making sure the foundations for humanity on Mars are established. And we've exceeded our most optimistic goals by staying focused. Christ, I miss Chinese food. You say that a lot. It's just... We've done our time here, don't you think? We're getting old, Al. We've built this settlement from the ground up together. Gave up our whole lives for this. We don't have much more to offer. Eventually, we'll be too weak to pick up a hammer. We'll be absorbing vital resources as we slowly die, rather than making further contributions to the settlement. He stopped for a moment and let out a heavy breath into the headset. <sighs> Neil Armstrong went to the moon and then returned to Earth, where he was celebrated as a hero for humanity. Shouldn't we have the same privilege? Shouldn't we be living out the rest of our days on a beach in Hawaii instead of this... this cold, lifeless desert? We knew what we signed up for. I'm looking forward to living the rest of my days here and watching Cronus expand even further than it already has. Nigel turned and snickered at me, his eyes slightly bloodshot from what appeared to be tears. He'd expressed his thoughts on returning to Earth previously, but never had I seen the notion affect him the way it was now. Something wasn't right with him. Nigel, what's gotten into you? His only response was to lower his head to the ground and walk slowly past me, back towards the airlock. I watched him walk, a wistful man longing for something he'll never receive. As day turned to night on the red planet, 
I did my best to think of something to raise his spirits. But with resources limited, there was not much to offer. This place had no viable respite. Perhaps he envisioned our time here unfolding differently. Maybe he expected more to come from our sacrifice, and simply laying the foundations for future generations was not the ultimate goal. Twenty years is a long time to wait for something without the gratification of obtaining it. I could sympathize. I'd spent countless nights awake in my living unit staring at the ceiling, wondering what was happening on Earth, and envying those who were fortunate to indulge in luxuries I no longer had access to and never would again. Those thoughts lasted only briefly. The prospect of our mission eventually devoured all personal desire. Everyone at Cronus had those thoughts from time to time, and they would quickly fade. For Nigel, though, this time the thoughts were not fading. My old friend was losing his enthusiasm in life. He needed me. Before going to sleep for the night, I booted up my laptop and sent Nigel an email. Tomorrow marks the 20th anniversary of our landing here. That's almost 11 Martian years. We should celebrate. Come to my living unit after morning audit. I've been hiding a bottle of whiskey that just came with the last arrivals just for us. I clicked send and went to sleep, hoping the email would provide a little boost to his mood when he saw it. The morning came and brought with it the usual routine of checking diagnostics on the habitat for any potential issues. I greeted my unit mate, Vanessa, when I awoke. She had come to Cronus four years ago, and we had shared our unit for the last six months. The living units rotated individuals regularly, so there wouldn't be any risk of growing too attached or agitated with someone. Socializing on Mars wasn't exactly frowned upon, but it was still viewed as a distraction. When you're one of only a few people on an entire planet, a petty squabble has devastating potential. We had our times of bonding together as a group, but for the most part we tried to keep it to a minimum and stay focused on our work and staying alive. Vanessa and I, on the other hand, skipped the last rotation and stayed in the same unit. We made up some excuse about how moving her items may compromise her geological research. In truth, we just didn't want to be apart. Before she moved in, I had forgotten what it was like to make a deep connection with another person. Vanessa was still my unit mate to everyone here, but there were a few nights shortly after she moved in where our relationship went... Uh, beyond the professional guise we displayed during the day. Soon after we stopped fighting the connection, we had embraced it. We cared deeply for each other. There was an unspoken agreement between Vanessa and I that we would keep our relationship a secret to the rest of Cronus. We both knew no good would come of it. During the day, she would sometimes find a moment to show me she cared when no one else was around. She would place a light fingertip on the dorsal side of my hand and draw an imaginary heart. It was so endearing and always made me ecstatic, invigorating the youthful spirit that had dwindled over the years. Vanessa sat at a desk adjacent to her bed, typing away on her computer. I stared at her from behind for a moment, admiring the beauty of her long auburn hair cascading over the back of her swivel chair. Good morning. She turned in her chair and greeted me with a smile of her own. Morning. Did you sleep well last night? She scrunched her nose and squinted her eyes. Not so great, actually. Is everything all right? Oh, I'm fine. I don't know. Couldn't get comfortable, I guess. Something just felt off to me. I'm sorry, sweetie. I walked to the window and stared out at the red planet. Our living unit was on the very outer edge of Cronus and provided a spectacular view of the surrounding landscape of Gusev Crater. In the sky was a lone, shining beacon resting peacefully in the bleak light of dawn. Phobos. 
It was much smaller from the surface of Mars than Luna was to Earth. I always saw it as much bigger than it actually was. I loved seeing it every day. There were never any clouds disrupting the view, only the occasional dust storm. Basking in this view every morning solidified my purpose in life. This was where I belonged. I was home. My attention was drawn to the LED alert on my computer indicating new notifications. I sat at the desk next to Vanessa and brought up my HUD. The transparent screen came to life in front of me, the corner of the screen marked with a red 36 in my email. More than the usual day, likely because of the anniversary, I assumed. My inbox was filled with congratulatory messages, a couple reports from the automated algorithms that monitored stasis throughout Cronus and any possible contaminations in the habitat, and one reply from Nigel. I had almost forgotten about the email I sent to him the night before. I opened the reply from Nigel first. All he sent back to me was a five-word response. It's too late for that. Shit. What is it? It's Nigel. He, uh, I don't know. I rolled my chair over to the intercom and selected Nigel's living unit. Nigel, are you there? I waited nervously for a few seconds, each one ticking by with a loud thud in my chest. Nigel, can you hear me? Someone breathed slowly into the other end, puffing methodically into the microphone. Nigel, is that you? You all right? Can I go home now? Speaking to him through the intercom wasn't optimal. Nigel was having some sort of breakdown and needed someone to calm him. I shot out of my chair and burst out of the living unit. Just outside my door was a group of about 30 people all wearing party hats and holding up a small cake. Surprise! Surprise! This was all either a ruse or just terrible timing. Either way, I wasn't taking the risk. Without a word, I ran past everyone, determined to reach Nigel's unit. A few of the people mumbled in confusion as I ran Dear, past hey, them. What's going on? What's gotten into him? But there wasn't any time to explain. I rushed through commons and down the hall to Nigel's unit and immediately swung his door open. Inside, Nigel sat on his bed, perched like a gargoyle. His face was as red as the sun, and his eyes were bloodshot. On the floor, between the two beds in the unit, was the body of his unit mate, Richard, partially covered with a white bedsheet. Only his blue, lifeless face protruded from underneath. The muscles in his face were frozen in a look of anguish, his mouth and eyes wide open, as though he were constantly reliving the last moment of his life. Around his neck were thick lines of bruised skin. Can I go home now? Nigel, what have you done? Satellite link in 60 seconds. Craig's face was almost hidden behind his monitor. His fingers furiously clicked away at the keyboard. His eyes rapidly scanned the UI in front of him. Craig was always relentless with his IT skills. The trance he displayed now was pretty common, although I could detect his fingers were working faster than they ever have before. What are you going to tell them? Vanessa stood over me while I sat in front of the monitor awaiting the connection to establish. Miggy responded for us. We'll tell them the truth. He was another member of the original four who first came to Mars. His real name was Miguel, but he preferred to be called Miggy. The moniker accurately captured the quirky personality he often expressed. Today, though, his quirky nature had vanished. What else would we tell them? Stefania was the last of the original four. Her hair was unnaturally messy and she looked as though she'd fell out of a tree. 
The whirlwind of the day's events prevented her from putting effort into her appearance. Vanessa gave a single nod of her head and put her hand on my shoulder. Are you doing all right? Honestly? I shifted my stiff head and met her gaze. No. She gave me a look of sympathy, then discreetly moved her hand towards the back of my neck. I felt her fingertip outline a heart over my skin, centered right on my spine. The sensation sent a comforting wave through my body. I looked at her and gave her a subtle smile. She gave me one back. 30 seconds. I took a deep breath and tried to sound professional. Thank you, Vanessa. We'll make an announcement to everyone after we're through here. She removed her hand, nodded, and turned and walked out of the room. The door whisked shut behind her, leaving the four of us alone. I nervously wiped the sweat off my forehead as I waited for the video feed to load. It had only been a little more than two hours since the discovery that shook Cronus. None of us would ever be quite the same. The foundations of our little society were dealt a devastating blow after the last member of the initial four, as we were aptly referred to as around Cronus, turned out to be a killer. Nigel. The screen blinked and displayed a message I had grown accustomed to over the years. Connection established. The video feed opened in a separate window, where we were greeted with the board of directors of the Galileo Project, the organization responsible for the first colony on Mars. They sat around a lengthy oak table, seated comfortably in luxurious leather chairs. At the head of the table sat a familiar face, Ivan Samuel. I hadn't seen him in person in nearly 22 years, but I had watched his face grow wrinkles and his hair turn gray in our time apart. Ivan stood from his chair with a toothy grin and spoke enthusiastically. Al, Miguel, Stefania, on behalf of the Galileo Project and everyone on planet Earth, congratulations on 20 years living on Mars. The team around the conference table clapped their hands. Well done. I held up a hand and gave them a solemn look, then waited for their clapping to end. I'm afraid we have a, a bit of a situation here at Cronus. Ivan sat and slouched in his chair. A situation? What kind of situation? There's been a murder. Everyone on screen shot confused looks at each other. What do you mean, murder? I recognized the woman as Charlotte Werner, the CFO. One of our own here has killed another. Uh, who? Who is the killer? I'm afraid it's Nigel, sir. He suffocated Richard Cloud in his sleep last night. Are you joking? He's not. Oh my. This is terrible. Ivan looked around the room in deep thought. Why? Why did he do such a horrendous thing? Well, we're not entirely sure about that, but I believe he did it because he doesn't want to be here anymore. You mean he wants to come back to Earth? Well, that's what he said. He keeps asking if he can go home. A cold silence fell over the feed, no one quite sure of what to make of the news. Their blank stares at each other mirrored what I was feeling. We had no protocol for this, no plan for any kind of action. Prepping for life on Mars never included any training for handling murder scenarios. Where is Nigel now? He's isolated in his living unit. We've designated a surveillance team to keep an eye on his every move. Good. Why does he want to leave Mars? He spoke with me yesterday and made a comment about his age. He's 53 years old now. I think he's experiencing a transition of identity. A severe one. I took my eyes off the screen and stared out the window to my left, allowing myself a moment to get lost in my own thoughts. 
Mars looked different to me now, compared to this morning when I awoke with Vanessa and admired Phobos in the dim sky. The events of the day cast a ubiquitous depression over the planet I called home. The endless red stretching to the horizon served as a reminder of the harsh conditions we occupied. All of us at Cronus were living in a place that nature never intended us to live in. We didn't fit. Mars was speaking to us, warning us. You cannot force life to exist where it didn't belong. My focus shifted from the window to the floor in front of me. Regardless of what Nigel had done, I still thought of him as my friend. A friend that I had spent half of my life with. A friend who was in need of help. I couldn't shake the feeling of guilt for not being able to help him. What he did was wrong, of course, but he still deserved sympathy. I think he should return to Earth. Are you mad? It would be best for everyone at Cronus. It's not like we've got a prison to stick him in. The Galileo Project cannot continue with him here. Ivan slammed the palm of his fist against the table and hastily raised himself out of his chair. It's not like calling an Uber, you know. Do you have any idea how much it would cost, not to mention how long it would take? Even if we had a craft ready to launch today, we couldn't do it. The planets aren't even aligned properly. I'm fully aware that it would take some time. At least five years. And what are you going to do with him while you wait? Our model is built on sending people there, not bringing them back. We'd have to build a speciality ship from scratch. All this on top of the inevitable lawsuits that are sure to follow. It's not about money. The growth of Cronus is paramount. He's a liability here that will hinder our growth. He needs to go back to Earth and be brought to justice. Ivan placed both his hands on the table and leaned forward, his tone softening. Look, Al, you and the people at Cronus are pioneers. Like the early European settlers of Plymouth. Do you think the Pilgrims pestered England for matters of diplomacy? Well, I hardly think I'm pestering you. I'm sorry, Al, but you're on your own. Cronus was eventually going to have social issues arise as more and more people are sent there. It's time you all come up with a way to deal with these things when they happen. As much as I hated to admit it, Ivan had a point. In 20 years, we'd been lucky enough to avoid any serious confrontations, but it certainly wouldn't be that way forever. Humans will naturally encounter conflict at some point. And what were we supposed to do with Nigel for the years that would follow as we waited for his departure? We understand. What do you advise we do with Nigel? I would advise you to keep him isolated from the rest of the group. Lock him in his pod until he kills himself or dies naturally, but it's your decision ultimately. He sat down in his chair again, grabbed a remote, and pointed it at the camera. Kill him now if you want and make it quick. It's in your hands. Report back to us in 24 hours. Connection lost. The video feed ended and the monitor went black. I sat there, staring in awe at the screen, dumbfounded by the complete lack of remorse Ivan and the board displayed. Their concerns were that of selfish intent. I picked myself up out of the chair and exited the briefing room without saying a word to anyone. Vanessa stood outside, leaning against a wall and biting her fingernail waiting for me to exit the room. She locked eyes with mine and pushed herself off the wall as I approached. What did they say? Pretty much nothing. They can't bring him back to Earth, and they expect us to handle this internally. She nodded solemnly. Not much else they can do, I suppose. She stuck the tip of her finger back into her teeth and chewed at her nail. What do we do from here? We focus on rehabilitating him. Isolate him in his cell and dedicate Dr. Backus to conducting daily therapy with him 
until she can confidently say he's mentally healthy and able to rejoin the colony. She pulled her finger away and gave me a stern look. You can't be serious. Of course I am. Al, he's a killer. You can't possibly think it would ever be okay for him to walk freely among us. I'm not saying he'll return to his usual duties by tomorrow. It could take years. But what else can we do? Throw him out the airlock. The outburst was a side of Vanessa I had not seen before. The ordinarily gentle and nurturing personality she possessed had somehow disappeared. The transformation took me off guard. We're not barbarians, Vanessa. He can't live with us, that's for sure. No one will trust him again. That's why I couldn't sleep last night. Something was off and my body knew it. Are you listening to yourself? You're trying to justify murder. I'm just warning you that there's going to be an uproar if you go this route. People are scared. There'll be chaos throughout Cronus if we don't punish him appropriately. And this colony you've worked so hard for and dedicated your life to will crumble faster than you could ever possibly imagine. And how do you think we'd be able to live with ourselves after knowing we sentenced a man to death? She's right. I turned and saw Craig, Miggy, and Stefania all exiting the briefing room and walking towards the two of us. Miggy raised his arm in the air as though he were asking to be called upon by an elementary school teacher as he walked. I don't feel comfortable living with the killer, and I know with certainty that many others feel the same. Stefania shook her head. I'm with Al. We should make every effort possible to save him before we place an irreversible and potentially erroneous judgment. We should be sure before deciding. I had never been a fan of capital punishment, and that stance was not about to change. Life was precious, especially on a planet where it couldn't survive in its natural elements. We shouldn't be throwing it away. Rehabilitation was the answer. I knew in time he could progress to a functioning person again. But we were divided on the matter. Whatever decision we came to on our own would not satisfy everyone. The decision should not be ours and ours alone. We'll put the decision to a vote. Rehabilitation or death. Cronus will decide as a collective unit. It's the only way to ensure civility among the people. We all agreed it was the best course of action, and set forth addressing everyone at Cronus and Commons after everyone had gathered. Stefania joined me in arguing for rehabilitation, while Miggy adamantly argued for the death penalty. There were times when the debate sparked outrage from amongst the people, and we had to calm everyone. At some points, people broke down crying. We spent countless hours going back and forth, nearly everyone speaking their opinions of what should be done. All the while, I could see Nigel down the hall, still in his living unit, perched on his bed. He showed little emotion and kept his attention on the floor where the body of Richard was found. It wasn't until Miggy stooped low enough to call him a degenerate waste that I finally saw a reaction from Nigel. He closed his eyes and slowly shook his head from side to side, clearly ashamed of himself. A man filled with grief should never be discarded. The consensus seemed to lean towards death, during my closing argument, I made a last-ditch effort to save his life. I called Nigel to speak in his own defense. The request seemed to catch Nigel off guard, as well as everyone else, but surprisingly, he obliged. He dragged his body through the middle of the crowd, walking as though he were carrying heavy weights at his side. He joined me in front of everyone and pleaded for his life. I... I don't really know what to say to you all. I don't blame any of you for your anger towards me, because I'm, I'm angry with myself. I've done a horrible thing, something I'll never forgive myself for. 
He paused to collect himself as he quickly became overwhelmed with emotion. His eyes welled with tears. But I'm not lost. Look at me. The man you've all known for years is still here. And he wants to come back and join you all. And with the little help he can. Please help the man you see before you. Help him become a better person again. He held his arms out to everyone. Help me. Don't give up on me. Not yet. His legs buckled and he fell to his knees. He buried his face in his hands as he wept uncontrollably. Please, have mercy on me. The vote was 37 to 34 in favor of rehabilitation. After the votes were tallied, I felt a wave of relief. I did my job to save a life. The destroyed perception I'd felt earlier about Mars had lifted itself off my shoulders and cast a new prospect of hope. We would continue to thrive. Cronus would live on. The menacing look shot at me by those who voted for death would soon fade once they saw progress. I just knew it. If we stayed on this path, there was a future for us all here. I assured that Nigel's living unit had a guard present and returned to my own living unit alone afterwards. Vanessa asked if she could speak with me, but after hearing her support for the complete disregard of basic human rights, I was not quite ready to engage in further disagreement. I asked for some time to myself. Once I had a moment of privacy in my living unit, I reached under my bed and grabbed the bottle of whiskey I had stashed. My original intention was to share this with Nigel, but given the circumstances, sharing a drink with him wouldn't be right. I felt I had earned the drink without him. For the 20 years I dedicated to building a new world and for upholding justice. I took a shot and plopped myself into bed, mentally exhausted from all that had transpired. The sun had started to fade when I took another shot and closed my eyes, drifting off into nothingness. Eventually I was awoken by a loud bang coming from outside that seemed to echo throughout Cronus. My eyes shot open and I realized I was surrounded by darkness. I had slept through sunset. The only source of light was the stars outside. I crawled out of bed and reached for the light just as the breach alarm sounded, indicating a rupture had just occurred somewhere in Cronus. A breach had only happened once before, during a dust storm about six years ago. A piece of metal had become dislodged and punctured a wall in an empty living unit. Luckily, there were security measures in place that would immediately seal any room with a breach to protect the rest of Cronus. No one was harmed in the incident. But what was causing this one? There was no storm outside, and no reason for debris to be flying around putting us at risk. I exited my room and immediately noticed a crowd gathered around Nigel's room. Al! Nigel's stuck inside! There's been a breach! What? How? Someone's outside! They've intentionally ruptured his living unit! Well, get him out! I ran across commons toward the wild commotion that overtook the entirety of the colony. Use the override switch to open the door. Nobody's touching anything. Stay back. The crowd all began to move backwards, clearing a line of sight that led to Miggy, standing with his back against the door and his arms outstretched like a bird. He stood vigilant with a look of determination, guarding the doors and preventing the rescue of Nigel. This was a group effort. From the other side of the door, Nigel was being tortured as the atmospheric pressure rapidly changed inside. He slammed his body furiously against the door in a frenzied panic. Nigel, 
If you can hear me, use the emergency kit to patch the hole. Miggy shook his head at me. We removed the kit from his room. There's no escape. Stefania held her ground, inching closer to Miggy as the rest backed away. Miggy, how could you? We're doing what's necessary. We have to protect the people of Cronus. She ignored his conviction and ran forward. Get out of the way, you monster! Miggy lunged at Stefania, raised his hand, and brought it down across her face. The slap sent Stefania tumbling to the floor as the rest of us gasped in disbelief. The outline of a spacesuit outside passed by the window to my left, the person fleeing the sabotage they created. Craig appeared out of the group and bolted towards Miggy. You son of a bitch! He charged and tackled Miggy to the ground, pinning him against the floor and slamming his fist into his face. Each blow sent droplets of blood flying through the air. I took the opportunity to rush at the override button. I was only a few meters away from the controls when a fist swung and collided with my face. The impact sent me stumbling and I struggled to stay on my feet. By the time I regained composure and prepared to defend myself from another attack, the entire commons had erupted into a brawl. Bodies were contorted as they wrestled on the floor, everyone struggling to either save Nigel or ensure he died. Amidst the chaos, I moved to the override controls and pressed the button. As the door whisked open, the mayhem that was taking place subsided, everyone instead focusing on the door. A whistling sound immediately flowed into commons as the air pressure quickly changed. The skin on my face instantly felt as though it was being held against a roaring fire. As the door opened, Nigel's body fell forward and plopped onto the floor in front of me. Pull him out so I can close the door. A young man grabbed Nigel by the collar of his shirt and dragged his body out of the clearing. Once he was out, I operated the controls and closed the door. Our efforts to save Nigel were too late. When his body was flipped over, his face was a horrifying disfigurement of its former self. His eyes bulged from their sockets and looked like two water balloons that had been filled to their maximum capacity and were about to explode. The blood vessels in his skin had all constricted, expanding the flesh of his face into a bright red ball. I held back an acidic taste that rose from deep within my throat. Mars had finished what it started on Nigel. It had fully consumed him and ended his life. Spare your empathy for someone who's not a killer. Miggy broke the silence that had fallen over us. He lay on the ground trying to recuperate from the beating he received from Craig. I ignored Miggy's heinous remark. There would be time to deal with him appropriately later on. He could have his victory. At the moment, there was still a person outside, lurking around Cronus and still a potential risk. And I knew who it was. You've won, Miggy. You and whoever else wanted this. Congratulations. You've destroyed everything we've worked for. And you will all be held accountable for your actions today. I paused and bit my lip, furious by the notion of what Cronus had succumbed to. How do we live with each other now? How can any of us sleep peacefully at night when the prospect of survival is determined by the will of another? I paused again, turned slowly and met Miggy's eyes before pointing my finger down at him with fury in my eyes. 20 years, my entire life's work, the future ambition of humanity all destroyed in an instant. All of it, ruined and gone forever. You'll pay for this. An eerie silence devoured the room. Every person stood still and allowed the magnitude of our new reality to sink in. I briskly turned and walked away from the scene. Where are you going? I'm going to the airlock. 
I moved briskly through commons, walking with purposeful stride past the series of living units. Some of them were occupied with frightened people all staring at me nervously as I passed them. She was already entering the airlock by the time I reached it. I could see the red lights blinking through the small window, an alert that the outside door was opening. Vanessa was coming back inside. Are you happy with yourself? I spoke into the headset as I positioned myself at the airlock controls. You've destroyed this colony. Is that what you wanted? She walked up to the window and stared back at me. You were so determined to get rid of a killer that you became a killer yourself. Yeah, you're right. The outside door closed behind her. I flicked the switch and the airlock came to life, whirling in a hiss as it optimized the pressure for her. I should have listened to you. She had given me a warning earlier that clemency would result in anarchy. I failed to comprehend the fears others had and assumed my altruistic efforts would humanize Nigel potential consequences were not considered. We are instinctively programmed to prioritize survival. Fear consumes us. It disrupts tranquility and motivates harmful actions. We should have punished Nigel. No. No, you were right, Al. I see what we've become. I see it now. There's blood on my hands. That's not who I wanted to be. She unhinged her helmet, then placed a finger on the window and outlined a heart. What are you doing? Goodbye, Al. In one smooth motion, she pulled her helmet off and slapped the release button, opening the doors behind her. Her body collapsed, falling below the window and out of my sight into an agonizing death. Cronus is done. I sat in the briefing room the next day. This time, Ivan met with me alone. The damage is irreparable. We progressed faster than we could have anticipated. Cronus had changed, but we had not changed with it. Right. Too many people, not enough regulation. No one is willing to live under these circumstances any longer. I know it'll take time. We'll wait for you. Very well. We'll start working on an exit strategy. Make sure there's enough to accommodate 58. Aren't there 69 left? I nodded and gave him a menacing glare thinking of Miggy and his accomplices. Not anymore. In our final tale, we join Fiona working the night shift at a call center for a message service. It's not the most rewarding work. It can be frustrating. It's an exhausting, repetitive job. Every evening plays out the same. But in this tale, shared with us by author Charles Eads, this particular evening takes an unexpected turn after a strange call late at night suggests a potential emergency. Performing this tale are Penny Scott Andrews, David Alt, Erica Sanderson, James Cleveland, and Andy Cresswell. So make sure you pick up the phone when it rings 
You never know when someone might need help, especially if they're the Midnight Caller. Speaking. How may I help you? Can I wake you up? No. Um, yes. Apologies. Please don't tell anyone. Not a soul. Do I take it you're having a quiet night? You're the first person who's called in, like, 40 minutes? Oh, I only meant to rest my eyes. It's all right, we've all been there. I'm about to clock off myself. When do you finish? Not for another six hours. Oh, you poor thing. Do you often work the night shift? I only do the night shift. Wow. Why, if you don't mind me asking? It was all they had available. Damn. Yeah. You got the short straw. I'm rotational, so I don't have to be here every night. Don't know how I'd manage if I had to do this all the time. Lucky you. Lucky me. Well, I'd better cut to the chase so I can go home and sleep. Uh, I have an update for Fairweather Solicitors. I'm assuming you're that answer phone service. That's us. Me. Whoever. I think I spoke to you last week. Was it Wednesday night? Um... You told me to shove it where the sun don't shine. Oh, no. Was that you? Afraid so. Uh, sorry. That's okay. I assumed you were having a bad day. Bad month. Oh, that's unfortunate. I was surprised you didn't complain. I've worked in call centres. I know what it's like. Are you better now? As opposed to last week? Not really. But I promise I won't be rude this time. That's nice to hear. Anyway, the reason I called is that... Hold on, I need to wake up my computer. Oh, in that case, I'll finish my coffee. You do that. Are we ready? Nearly. Just need to open the right file. What was the company name? Fairweather Solicitors. Is the message for anyone in particular? Whichever of those fuckers can be bothered to read the note. Bad news, then. Ugh, those bastards have been chasing us for weeks, and I'm having to make all these phone calls at ridiculous hours of the night just to get them off our backs. Uh, but you didn't hear that from me, of course. Of course. Who should I say is calling? Tempest Housing. They know who we are. And what's the message? We did the survey like they asked, and while it's true the foundations were unstable, there is no way the engineer could have predicted it would collapse in the way it did. 
And while we're all very sorry Mr. King was injured, we are not liable for his injury claim, and if they decide to take us to court, they will find themselves blown out of the water like James fucking Cook and spend the next ten years paying our fees, and if they disagree, they can call back tomorrow when I'll be at home watching Stranger Things on Netflix in my underwear. Shall I paraphrase that last bit? Eh, whatever you like. Want me to repeat anything? I think I got the gist of it. Should I give them your number? They've got the office number and I'm certainly not giving them mine. I'd never hear the end of it. Anything you want me to add? No, I just hope I don't have to make a similar call same time next week. It all sounds very serious. Well, I probably shouldn't give away too much. It's just one of those jobs. Will that be all? Yeah, thanks for your time. No problem. You have a good night now. You too. Enjoy Stranger Things. <laughs> I'll try. Night. Goodbye. <sighs> Coffee time. Diaries are us. Wrong phone. Hello? Hi, sweetie. Judy, I told you not to call here. I'm at work. You said you were the only one in the office tonight. I'm still working. If someone calls, just put me on silent. No problem. Why are you calling anyway? I thought you'd be lonely. You are alone, aren't you? Yes. Again. Why do they keep making you do that? It's not supposed to be like this. In theory, there should be a minimum of two people in the office at any one time, so one of us can take breaks. But we're short-staffed and no one wants to do the night shift, so here I am. Mm, sucks. Yeah. What do you do if you need to pee? I hurry. How fast can you go? I time myself. Two minutes, there and back. Wow. You should go for the Guinness Book of Records. Maybe. How are you, anyway? Oh, fine. Surprised you're still awake. I just got in. Been out with Lana and the others. We missed you. Sure you did. We did, honest. When are you going to get a job with reasonable hours? You tell me. It's not healthy working at night all the time. Yeah, well, beggars can't be choosers. I'm lucky to have this job. It's not lucky if there's no other work available. You were the smartest kid in high school. You shouldn't be wasting your life in that shithole. Says the waitress. Hey, I know my life's nothing to brag about, but then I was a lazy little shit at school. What did I expect? You were the one who actually worked hard and cared about your education. You should be running a business sorting out climate change. Call centre staff are the modern such, toiling away at the bottom of the careers ladders for white old men with salaries the rest of us can only dream of. You're the ones who should be running amok, burning the houses down to the 1%. If we were in France, you'd be building the bloody guillotines. Well, I'm not. And we're not in France. Mm, shame. French have got the right idea. Whenever their government does something stupid, they riot. Over here, we just knuckle down and take it like sheep. 
We think moaning on Facebook and meaningful action are the same thing. Judy, love, you're starting to rant. Sorry, we got talking about politics. Always a bad idea. Sharon kept saying why she doesn't vote, and then we got arguing. I was like, how can you say that when people died so that you could have the right to vote? The reason politicians shit on us is because we don't do enough. We don't vote, we don't campaign, we don't do anything. We just sit at home watching Netflix and tweeting about whether or not John fucking Snow is dead or not. Gosh, like any of that matters when the world is ending and our country is going to shit. Breathe. Sorry, I'm a bit drunk. <laughs> I notice. Fiona, just tell me everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. Thanks. I don't believe you, but I needed to hear that. Are you okay? In general? Uh, I guess. You don't sound very sure? I just keep thinking I should start dating again. Not because I really want a man in my life, it's just... Fiona, I have a confession to make. What? I don't like going out with the girls. Really? You're all right. And some of them are okay on their own. But every time we meet up as a group, it just ends up with someone arguing. Someone in tears and a shitload of passive aggression. If I had a boyfriend, I had an excuse not to go out with them. But then you'd have to put up with the company of men. I know. Still... I reckon I could deal with one man. But it's never just one man, is it? Each guy you date comes with two or three others attached. And when they get together, you drown in testosterone. Yeah. Maybe I should take a leaf out of your book and date girls. Do you fancy girls? No, but I could try. You remember that drama teacher? (laughs) Your girl crush. Exactly. She was fit. I mean, really fit. Like Angelina Jolie before she had work done fit. Surely that must count for something. I don't know. Did you have sex with her? No. Should I? No. I think teachers shagging students is generally a bad idea. My point is, one teenage girl crush doesn't necessarily make you gay. Pity. Maybe I should track her down and see if she remembers me. Well, let me know how that goes. You seeing anyone? I work a night shift. Of course I'm not seeing anyone. When do I have time to see anyone? Another reason you need to get the hell out of there. Tell me something I don't know. You know what we should do. Go on holiday together. Somewhere with decent nightlife where we can just both have one night stands and do stuff we'll regret later. How does that sound? That sounds great. If I could afford it. Would the money really be such a problem? If it wasn't a problem, I wouldn't be here. Sucks. Well, we'll think of something. We could always hitchhike somewhere. Judy. Two girls hitchhiking is the start of every horror movie from the last 40 years. You've got to live a little. That doesn't mean getting murdered by some pervert. 
What if it was a lady pervert? Oh, shut up. Well, I should probably turn in. Or I might do some solo drinking, like the sad, lonely person that I am. Mm, haven't decided yet. Be careful. No such luck. Hope work isn't too horrible. Thanks. And GD, thanks for calling. Sorry, I was grumpy. It was nice to talk. What else am I good for? And hey, if I suffer from insomnia, I might phone again. You do that. That's a promise. Ta-ta for now. Bye. <sighs> Not long now. Diaries are us. Fiona speaking. How may I help you? Diaries are us. Fiona speaking. How may I help you? Hello? Hello? You've reached Diaries Are Us. Who's speaking, please? I'm scared. Um... There's a strange man in my bedroom. What? I think he wants to hurt me. Who is this? from Tempest Housing? Yes. Were you resting your eyes again? No, just... What can I do for you? I need to add an addendum to my last message. This is for Fairweather Solicitors. I remember. Just give me a moment. Okay, go ahead. We did a survey on the property in question, and our engineer can show them photos and a CCTV report. Obviously, there's no point emailing now, but if they ring our office during normal hours, we can send them. They've got our number, but if those idiots ask, the one to call is 0161-2203-4234. Have you got that? 4324. Got it. They'll probably kick up a stink anyway, but I'm told we have to show them the results for full disclosure. Waste of time in my opinion, but hey, I'm just a little office boy. Anything else? Nah, that's all, thanks. Hopefully this will be the last time we speak tonight. Yeah. Uh, you alright? You sound a bit spaced out. Tired. That's all. Yeah, me too. Well, pleasure doing business with you. Yeah. Good night. Hello? Judy? Are you awake? No, I'm fast asleep. 
Yes, of course I'm awake. What do you want? Something's happened. What? Are you okay? I... No, I don't know. It... It's just... Something weird's happened. What? What's the matter? I... Okay. A few minutes ago, I, I got a call. The number was withheld. It sounded like a child. He... Or she, I'm not sure. They said they were scared. It was probably a prank call. What's the problem? But it... I can't explain it. It was so eerie. It sounded like they were in danger. So, what? You think it might have been genuine? I don't know what to think. But what if there's a child in danger somewhere and they were asking me for help and... I don't know what to do. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let's be logical about this. If a kid actually was in danger and they had a phone, wouldn't they call the police? I mean, you're an answering phone service, for heaven's sake. Why would they be calling you? I don't know. Maybe it's someone else's phone. Maybe they had us on speed dial, or maybe they dialed the wrong number. What did you say to them? Nothing. Nothing at all? I didn't know what to say. You didn't ask for details? I didn't have a chance. It was surreal, like a bad dream. Okay, okay, calm down. Listen to me, listen. I still think this is a prank call, but if there's 1% chance it was real and there's a kid in trouble, you'd better call the police. What do I tell them? I don't have a number, no address. I don't even know the kid's name. Fiona, they're the police. Let them do the detective work. Your job is just to report it and then you can stop worrying about it. I can't stop worrying about it. Well, just phone someone. You must have had emergency calls before. Yeah, but nothing like this. And our training's not worth shit. They don't tell us what to do if a fucking scared kid rings up begging for help. Get it together. Ring the police. Or ring your manager. (laughs) You don't know my manager. We'll do something. Do you want me to come over? No, you're miles away. Anyway, how could you come over? You don't drive. There are buses. Not after midnight. Fine, but I suggest you call someone with a little more authority than myself and then come back and tell me what they say. Does that sound like a plan? Yes. Yes. Thanks. No problem. Speak soon, okay? Okay. Hello, emergency service operator. Service you require. Please, please. Hi, I'm calling from Diaries of Us. It's a call centre. We provide an out-of-hours service. I'm ringing because someone called the office a few minutes ago. It sounded like a child, and I think they're in danger. What time was this exactly? About... Yes, it was midnight, exactly. And what did the person say? They said, I'm scared. 
there's a strange man in my bedroom. I think he wants to hurt me. Those exact words. Did they leave a name or number? No. Any kind of address? Nope. It's not much to go on. I know. But is there anything you can do? Well, I'll see if any calls have come in matching your description, but... I'll be honest, without any kind of details, there's not a great deal we can do. Wait, we record all our calls. That's company policy. If I could find the call on our system, would that help? I suppose. I'll need your name and number anyway, in case we want to get in touch for more information. Sure. My name's Fiona Green. Is this the best number to call you on? No, I'm using the office phone. My mobile is 07654 34325. Okay. Thanks Judy? Thanks to you, I can't sleep. Did you ring the police? Yeah, they weren't very helpful. The thing is, I found something a bit disturbing. What? Before I explain, I just want to go on record and say I still think this is a prank. Noted. Go on. Well, I figured if your mystery caller is ringing up a random company, then maybe they've tried it with other people as well. So, I went on Twitter to see if it happened to anyone else in the last hour. Judy, are you mad? I could get sacked for that. Relax, I didn't mention you or your company. I just tweeted to ask if anyone else had received a similar call. I made it sound like it was me who got it. Anyway, no one bit, but someone did share a link to a news story from about five years ago. How much do you know about that business park? Apart from it's in the middle of nowhere and is really creepy after midnight, not much. Did you know that there used to be a block of flats there? No, I didn't know that. Well, they were knocked down a while ago to make room for more testaments to the might of capitalism. Get to the point, Judy. Sorry. Five years ago, there was a family living in one of the flats. A couple with just the one child, an eight-year-old girl. She was a... funny lass. What do you mean? That's how the article puts it. The implication is she had some kind of mental health problems. One night, she was found in her bedroom. She'd been strangled to death. No sign of an intruder, and no one was ever convicted of her murder. The spooky part is, there was a mobile phone next to the body. I don't know if it was hers or one of her parents. The phone record said it dialed a number at midnight exactly, a call lasting for 43 seconds before it was cut off. The number was never traced. No one knows who she rang or why. What happened to the parents? Vanished. No one knows where they are now. 
Judy, why did you tell me that? Bit of a coincidence, don't you think? It doesn't help me right now. No, I suppose not. It's just similarities are a bit odd. But this happened right next door to you. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Sorry. How are you holding up? I don't know. I really hope you're right and it is just a prank. It's the not knowing that gets me. What will you do if the police can't get help? I'm trying to see if I can find the cord on our system. Trouble is, you need a password and only my manager has that. Can't you call him? He wouldn't give me the password. Besides, if I wake him at this hour, he'll tear me a new wedge. What else can you do? Cry? Don't do that. I'll try. Things must be getting bad. I actually considered phoning Mel. Oh, dear. Not sure who I'm more scared of. My manager or my ex? Fiona, no matter how stressed you get, that is never the answer. I know. You need to move on. For fuck's sake, I know. I wasn't actually going to. I just... just wanted to hear her voice. You could drop an atom bomb on that girl and she wouldn't bat an eyelid. Tell her aliens have landed or the seas turned red and she'd just shrug and have another shot of whiskey. Smooth cow. You said it. So take a leaf out of her book. Weird shit's going down, but the sun will rise in, what, five hours or so? The world will keep spinning and all will be well. Amen to that. Just a moment. Yes? It's me again from Tempest Housing. Oh, fuck off. What happened? Nothing. You said fuck off. I wasn't talking to you. The same guy's called here three times tonight. And you told him to fuck off? Yes. Isn't that kind of not allowed? Yeah, but uh, he'll understand, I hope. Okay, I've made up my mind. I'm calling my manager. Good luck. Would you stay on the line for me? Of course, sweetie. I'll be right here. Hi, it's Fiona. I'm in the office tonight. Oh, yes. What is it, Fiona? This might sound odd, but I need the password for the Verint system. Why? I need to listen to a call that came in at midnight. Is there a reason this can't wait until the morning? Well, it is morning, technically. You know what I mean, Fiona. Why is it urgent? The call came from a child. I think they're in danger. I need to listen to the call again. I've already been to the police and they said it would help. Wait, wait, you you phoned the police? Of course I phoned the police. Fiona, you do not do something like that without consulting a supervisor first. I'm consulting you now. Do not interrupt me. 
There are procedures in place for the event of an emergency, and you had no reason to go to the police without first informing me and letting me come to the office. Is stopping someone from harming a child good enough for you? I'm going to pretend you didn't just talk back to me like my teenage daughter. Now listen, what did the police say? They said they need to hear the call. If they need to do that, they'll send someone to the office during normal working hours when myself or another senior staff member will be there to help them. You do not need the Verant system. No, listen, that kid is in danger now. If there is a child and they're in danger, then the police will handle it. You've done all you can. No, they told me there was nothing they could do without listening to the call. Then I'm sure they'll send someone in the morning. That might be too late. Fiona, may I remind you, your shift is ongoing and you're on the phone to me when there may be customers waiting. Kindly hang up and get back to work. I need that password. Then I shall hang up for you. Do not call here again unless it's an emergency. It is an emergency. Goodbye, Fiona. If you hang up, I will walk out the building and never come back. Are you still there? Yes, Fiona, I'm still here. Now, listen. No, you listen to me. If you don't give me the password, I'm going to leave the office. That means no staff answering the phones for the next six hours. That means you miss your targets and maybe even lose a few clients, and that all comes back to you as the manager. Fiona, if you leave, you'll be dismissed with immediate effect. I know, but I don't think you want that, because I've been the only person here for three nights in a row. By leaving me here on my own, you're breaking policy, and we don't want that to get back to head management. And who are you going to get to replace me? I know you offered double pay to the others, and even that wasn't enough. No one wants to work the night shift unless they absolutely have to. Sure, you'd find some poor sod who couldn't refuse, but how long would that take? The training alone takes six weeks. There are advantages to doing the job no one else wants to do, because if I walk away, who's going to take my place? So, I'm going to ask one last time. Give me the fucking password. We are going to have strong words tomorrow. Oh, I'm trembling. You have a pen? Yes. Diaries are us, too. One word, all lowercase. That it? Yes. Do not ring me again. Fiona? Shit. I forgot you're on speaker. Girl, you are one badass motherfucker. Thanks. Okay. I'm in. Now I have to find the damn thing. Oh, what now? Oh, no. Fiona, what's going on? It's them. It's the kid. They're ringing me back. How do you know? The number's withheld. Doesn't mean it's them. I'm sure it is. Well, answer it and find out. Yeah. Don't go anywhere, will you? I told you, I'm right here. Okay. Hello? 
Where are you? There's a strange man in my bedroom. Tell me where you are, and I can help you. I think he wants to hurt me. Elise, tell me your name. What's your name? My name's Fiona. What's yours? Fiona? Yes. Fiona. That's my name. What's yours? Fiona, he's coming closer. He's looking at me. He's smiling. I'm scared, Fiona. He's reaching for me. Help me, Fiona. I don't want to die. No. Don't go. (gasps) Fiona. Tell me you heard that. I heard it. It was real, wasn't it? Yes. What are we going to do? I don't know what we can do. I know. This is good. There's two of them now. Even without the number, they must be able to trace it. Fiona? Uh, Patterns, nodes. There are some clever people out there. You'd be surprised what they can find. Fiona, slow down. I can't slow down. There is a fucking kid in danger. I know I'm not dealing with this very well, but I've never had to try and save a person's life, so don't tell me to fucking slow down. Shut up and calm down. I know you're worried. I'm worried too. But something's not right here. That child said the man in her room was looking right at her. If you were going to hurt a child, would you let them chat to someone over the phone? Maybe they're in the dark. Maybe he can't see it. He'd have heard her talking. What are you suggesting? I'm not sure. This just doesn't seem right. I know, but I can't sit here and do nothing. (sighs) That's impossible. What? Just not possible. Talk to me. What's not possible? It's not there. The call, it's not there. Neither of them are. You sure? Positive. The first one came through at midnight. Zero, hundred hours, nothing. Then the next one, that idiot from Tempest Housing. Then the one I made to the police. Tempest idiot again. Then me to manager. And that's the last one. Neither of them are there. Have you got the right date? Of course I've got the right date. Okay, keep it together. There must be a glitch in the system. There's no glitch. It records everything. Inbound, outbound, you name it. Even if it was a prank or some kind of scam, they'd leave a record. So now what? I've no idea. I can't go to the police again. Even if they come round in the daytime, there's nothing they can listen to. Nothing that can be traced. A ghost... Say that again. What? That last part. I said there's nothing the police can trace. Then you said ghost. Oh, come on, Judy. I'm just thinking out loud. You remember the story I found about the little girl? She was murdered in her bedroom. Before she died, she made one phone call. 
Presumably, she never got to finish it. Maybe that's what's happening. What? A phone call from beyond the grave? Don't be ridiculous. Anyway, why would some dead girl be calling here? This place isn't important. It's an office in the middle of nowhere. Well, you are an answer phone service. You take messages and pass them on to whoever they're intended for. Maybe this child is trying to leave a message. Who for? Whoever she was trying to ring the night she died. Do you actually believe that? I'm not sure. I don't understand this any more than you do. What's that? The phone again. Oh no. What? It says withheld. Well, answer it. Wait. I'm going to record it this time. Good idea. I'll do that too. Ready? Ready. Hello? Hello? Is that you? Please just tell me who you are. Tell me what you want. I want to help you, but I don't know how. Are you there? Hear me. <gasps> She's gone. What did she say? Hear me, I think. What do you mean by that? I don't know. Fat lot of good that's going to do. There is a bright side to all of this. If my theory about the ghost is true, there'll be no need for the police to get involved. Oh, whoop you do Look, I'm going to hang up. I, I want to check the recording. Yeah, me too. I'll call back in a sec. Fuck. Yeah? Did your phone record? No. Oh. Did yours? No. I mean, it did, but when I played it, I got nothing. Radio silence. Me too. Oh, that's weird. The whole thing is weird. Who or what is that kid and why does she keep calling me? I wish I knew. It has to be coincidence. It has to be. Or a trick. Or a mistake. Because the alternative is too... <laughs> it's too ridiculous. I really think I should come down there. How? I'll ring Lana and explain you're having problems. She can give me a lift. Won't she be drunk? No, she had the car with her. She's only had one drink. I'll set off now. Don't worry, I'll stay on the line. Hang in there, sweetie. You're an angel. Yeah, I know. Who's that? What? Someone just knocked at my door. Probably one of your housemates. No, they're all out. I'm the only one here. Are you sure? Yeah. I heard that. Judy, are you okay? I don't know. I don't know who that is. 
the landlord? No, he's on holiday. Well, does anyone else have a key to the house? I don't know. Whoever it is, can they hear you? I don't think so. Don't move. Stay quiet. I'm, I'm calling the police. Fiona, the door's not locked. What? The door to my room isn't locked. Okay, can you lock it now? I don't think I can. They'll know I'm here. I'm calling the police now. Just hang on. Oh, God, the handle's turning. Judy, stay calm. (laughs) He's coming in. Oh, God, he's looking at me. Judy! (laughs) Judy! Police, how can I help? My friend's in trouble. Someone's broken into her house. She's not answering her phone. Do you know your friend's address? It's a um, number eight Florence Avenue. Do you have the postcode? Um, no, sorry. And the friend's name? Judy Stevens. Please hurry, she's all alone there. Someone's on the way right now. May I take your name? Fiona Green. Didn't you phone earlier? About a child in danger? Yes. Was it you I spoke to? Yes. Am I to assume these two things are connected? I guess. I'm sorry about earlier. I don't understand what that was, but I know my friend is in trouble. She was scared. I just hope this doesn't turn out to be a waste of time. Yeah, me too. I don't suppose you have any more information about that child? Not really. It's been such a weird night. Sounds like it. Well, someone's on the way to your friend, and I've got your number, so we'll call when we know anything. Thank you. told me to fuck off. I'm so sorry. That's all right. I guess you were having a bad night. You have no idea. Want to talk about it? Not really. What can I do for you? Ah, to be honest, it doesn't really matter. I'm leaving in a moment. Thought I'd call to see if you're okay. That's nice of you. Yeah, not very professional. You probably have lots of customers who need your help. If you knew what's going on here in the last few minutes, horrible customers are the least of my problems right now. I must make a change. (laughs) Yeah. 
Anything I can do to help? No. Well, if it's any consolation, my life's not much fun at the moment either. You remember what you were saying about having a bad month? For me, it's just been a bad year, full stop. What happened? I was this close to getting married, then three months before the wedding, she got cold feet and that was it. I was just getting used to being single again when my mum passed away. Gosh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I found out the hard way it's true what they say. Crises come along in twos and threes, never just the one. I know that. I got dumped as well, by the way. Join the club. Mum used to say things get worse before they get better. I don't know if she was right or not, but that's what keeps me going. We have to hope things can improve, because otherwise, what can we do? Can I tell you something? Sure. My friend's in trouble. Real trouble, as in actual danger. Have you called the police? Yes. Now I'm waiting. It's horrible. You should go and be with her. I can't. I'm the only one in the office. Oh, fuck that. A job's a job, but good friends don't come around often. If I was you, I'd be out of that office right now and going to her. Who cares what your manager thinks? If they cared about you, they wouldn't have left you alone in a call centre in the middle of the night. Tell me I'm wrong. No. No. You're right. As soon as I hang up, you get over there. And if the fact your friend's life might be at risk is not enough for your managers, then maybe they don't deserve to have you. Yeah. Okay, I'll let you go now, but think about what I said, yeah? I will. It was nice talking to you, Fiona. You too. Wait a minute. Yes? You never told me your name. Didn't I? No. Well, it's Gary. Nice to talk to you, Gary. Yeah. Goodbye, and good luck. Good night. Judy? Police. Am I speaking to Fiona Green? Yes. We spoke earlier. Fiona, I must ask you to prepare yourself. Judy Stevens has been found dead. She was strangled. There was no one in the house. Since you were probably the last person to speak to her, you'll be asked to come in for questioning. Someone will be in touch soon. I thought you should be told first. I'm sorry I couldn't bring better news. Thanks. Will you be all right? Yeah. Is there someone you can go to? I'm at work. I see. Well, good night then.
Fiona? I... I'm sorry about earlier. I... I was just about to call you. I need to go home. What? Security just rang me. Someone's tripped the alarm. What does that mean? It means someone's broken into the building. How do you know? They told me. They have a live feed to our CCTV. They can see what's going on. Someone entered the building just now. Is there anyone in the room with you? No? You weren't expecting any visitors. I promise I won't be angry. I just need to know if that's the case. No. No one's coming. Okay. Fiona, I need you to stay calm and stay where you are. Security are on their way. He got Judy. And now he's coming for me. What? I think I should get out now. No. Stay exactly where you are. We don't know who this person is or what they want. It's too late. I suggest you stay quiet. The intruder hasn't found you. Let's keep it that way. I shouldn't have answered. <gasps> Lights have gone. What? I can't see. Don't panic. It's probably just a power cut. Security will turn it back on when they get there. They can't stop him. Just keep your voice down. I'll stay on the line, but don't say anything else. Have I mentioned I really hate this job? Fiona, you need to... Hello? 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 Behind you. There's no one. <gasps> oh, there he is. He's behind you. 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 <laughs> <laughs>
The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.